back on. But I am glad you are here. I am glad to see you on this beautiful day. And as always now, we wanna welcome everyone who's joining us online. Uh, some of you are watching right now this moment as we live stream. Others of you are going to see this service uh, later today maybe or sometime during the week. We wanna thank you uh, for joining us uh, today. Well, Easter is only one week away and we are very excited. I hope you are. I know I am about celebrating uh, together with you the resurrection of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And you already heard, uh, we're gonna have those three services. Marco told you about those, and you can look those up online if you didn't get the details. But I wanna remind you of four easy ways uh, that you can help us get ready. Last week there were three, uh, but you didn't do some of them, so I added one uh, to make it a little harder. Not really, they're all really easy. And the first is simply this, if you can come at eight, please do that. It'll free up seats at other services. Secondly, at any of the services, if you're able and you can park in our gravel lot, which is out here to the south of the auditorium, we would appreciate that. That also clears up space. I wanna reiterate what Marco said. We're asking you who are gonna come to the outdoor service at 9.30, this is the third thing if you're keeping tra track. Uh, we're asking those who are coming at 9.30 to also register, even though we won't be doing check-in. This will help us especially know about the kids uh, that are coming at that time. Uh, please also, uh, B-Y-O-C, that's C, not B-C. Uh, Bring your own chairs in case you're not checking in on that. And then finally, of course, invite as many friends as you can to join us, whether that is on campus or online because we are going to have a wonderful day celebrating the reality that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is risen. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, we're here to study God's word this morning. If you're new to Southwinds, maybe this is your first Sunday with us. We're actually finishing today a 10-week study through the New Testament book of Philippians. It's called Joyful. And Paul, as we've been seeing, has been calling us uh, over and over and over again to live joy-filled lives. He says, God wants your life to be filled with joy. And today, we're going to be seeing how central contentment is to joy. In fact, I'll just put it this way. It's impossible to experience the joy that Paul is talking about without contentment. Now, if you're not there yet, go ahead and get your Bibles open, Philippians 4. We're gonna start in verse 10. We're gonna go all the way to verse 23, the end of the letter. And what he's gonna tell us in these closing verses is that we must choose contentment. We must choose contentment. And I was thinking about it this week. I think it is hard to imagine a more timely message than this after more than a year uh, in this pandemic season. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have struggled with frustration and, and discontentment maybe more than any time before during this past year. And my guess is that I'm not the only one. And so just to kind of clear the air, we're gonna do together kind of a mass confession, all right? We're gonna be in this together. And, and in a moment, I'm just gonna ask you to raise your hands, be honest, and, and the question is just gonna be this. If in the past year, in your life, at any time there has been any kind of discontentment, now how do you know if that's the case? Well, a basic way to tell is this. Have you complained? Have you complained? Maybe you complained to someone else. Maybe you just complained in your mind. 
But if in the last year you complained about the government or your finances or your spouse or your kids or the spouse or the kids that you don't have, if you complained during this last year about your health or your age or your boss or the weather or the pastor, if you complained about commuting over the Altamont or if you complained about the way your neighbors keep your yard, if you complained in any way at any time over the last year, would you just raise your hand right now? Mass confession, you are a cranky bunch of people. (laughs) Well, we're gonna look at what Paul says to people struggling with discontentment. And I wanna begin with two short definitions to help clarify what we are talking about. The first is kind of a negative in a sense, and it's this contentment is not being driven by wanting more not being driven by wanting more. It's the experience of inner freedom from dissatisfaction, freedom from the out-of-balance appetites that grow out of our unfulfilled desires. It's the freedom from that itch. You gotta scratch. It says, I gotta have it. I cannot live until I get what I don't have. And see, Paul, as we're gonna see, he accepted what God gave him, whether it was much or little. And then second, contentment is the ability to live fully in the moment. In other words, I'm living now. I'm not putting my life on hold until I get something or get someone. I'm living with joy now, no matter the circumstances. So how do we do that? Well, I'm gonna give you a simple answer. It's very easy to understand. It's very difficult to put into practice. And the simple answer is in the title of this message, you must Choose contentment. You have to choose it. And you have to choose it again and again and again and again. You have to choose it today and choose it tomorrow. You'll be choosing it the rest of the lot, your life. But if you want to be content, you must choose contentment. Now, so with that in mind, I'm gonna organize what we're talking about today under three categories that I'm calling three choices for contentment. I'm gonna show you three ways that you can make this choice. And the first one is this. Go ahead and write this down in your message notes, which are in your app. You can get those there. It's practice gratitude for less than perfect gifts. And I get this from verse 10. And Paul says, as we open this passage, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So Paul is grateful. He's actually rejoicing greatly. It's the word mega here, so he's got mega joy. Paul has been, as you know, rejoicing all through this letter. This is like the 14th time he's talked about joy. And last week, you may remember, we noted that the key to rejoicing is not in getting what you desire, Joy comes from knowing what you deserve. And so when you realize what you deserve and when you see what you have gotten instead, God's grace, that makes you happy, amen? So why is Paul rejoicing? Well, it's not just because of God's grace, which is all the way through this letter, but it's also because shortly before he wrote these words, one day in jail, he looked up and he saw a man he hadn't seen for a long time. He saw a man named Epaphroditus. And he was carrying gifts from the Philippians. See, when you're in a Roman jail, as I've mentioned to you before, no one takes care of you. They don't feed you. 
They don't clothe you in Roman jails. And so Paul didn't have enough food. He didn't have clothing. He needed to stay warm. And then suddenly one day out of the blue, there's Epaphroditus. And so he is filled with joy. And he says it like this. The reason he gives is, at last, you Philippians renewed your concern for me. And this this word renewed is a a rare word. It it literally means to blossom again, like like flowers in spring. It's, It's like spring for Paul emotionally. I want you to think about this. Paul is filled with joy. Maybe he now has food and clothing he needs. Maybe he now has some money for future needs and so he has some security. Maybe he now has been reminded, he knows again that he has these friends praying for him, but he's still in prison. (laughs) He's still in prison. I mean, wouldn't you call that a less than perfect gift? See, a lot of us in Paul's situation would say, well, thanks for the food and the clothes, but I'd really, what I'd really like is to get out of prison. And if we did that, we'd miss out on joy. We would be focusing on what we don't have, not the gifts that God has given us. And here's the thing I know. Some of us in this room are really, really good at that, right? And it steals our joy. You see, to be content, you have to practice gratitude for less than perfect gifts. And here's just a reality. Let's just be straight about this. Every gift you ever receive in this life will be an imperfect gift, right? The people, the experiences that come into your life will never be perfect. And if, if you wait for them to be perfect before you give thanks, you'll never be thankful at all. And the truth is, way too many of us just take so much in our lives for granted. We forget that all of life comes to us as a gift. Many of you are here, you're married and you're with your spouse this morning. And if you are, you're with your spouse today, you are sitting next to an imperfect gift. And you can just take a look at that gift right now if you want to, go ahead. Now, you're sitting next to an imperfect gift, but don't forget, so are they. So don't get cocky, you know. (laughs) But you need to accept that you're married to an imperfect person and you need to rejoice in that gift. And I don't know, maybe there's someone in this auditorium right now that you need to go to after this service and you need need to say, I am grateful I'm married to you and here's why. And some of you aren't married and maybe, I don't know, there's someone in this auditorium you need to go to after the service and say, I'm grateful I'm not married to you and here's why, I don't know. (laughs) Your children, They're imperfect gifts, right? And parents, you must be grateful for them as they are now. And some of us parents do so much damage with our perfectionism toward our kids. Your body is a gift. Let me just see a show of hands again. Uh, No tricks here, a show of hands. Who here has an imperfect body? Would you please raise your hand, okay? There's gonna be a a little meeting after the service for those of you who didn't raise your hands so that you can meet the other people with perfect bodies and you guys can get married and have perfect kids. Um, But we go through life, don't we, thinking if my body were different, if I had someone else's body, then I would be grateful And, and gratitude never works that way. See, the only way to be truly grateful, which is essential for contentment, is to be grateful for the gifts that God has given you now. 
See, I must learn to be grateful for my body, my home, my friends, my work, my church, my mind, my life. And if I wait for perfect gifts, I will never be grateful at all. And so I must learn to be grateful for these gifts because they're the only ones I will ever get in this world. So let me just ask you, are you discontented about people in your life who don't measure up to your expectations? You know, they're not smart enough or attractive enough or healthy enough for you. Focus on what it is God gives you through them, not what's missing. Because the reality is, by God's grace, they bring some gift to you. So don't forget the gift. See, Paul could do this. Paul could rejoice because he had learned to receive imperfect gifts. And you know, the truth is, life is hard and and life is sometimes painful, but life is also always good. How do I know that? Because God is the giver of life and so that means to be alive is a good thing. And so we can choose to be grateful. You know, you might almost skip over it because the phrase is so common in Philippians in the, even in the New Testament. But the reason Paul could do it is right here in this verse, it's almost hidden there. His focus wasn't on the gift. His focus was on Jesus. He says, I rejoice greatly. What's next? In the Lord. See, his joy, his gratitude was in Christ. And that leads us right into the second choice. And again, you can write this down in your outline. We choose to learn contentment through life experience. See, part of experiencing contentment is understanding it's not automatic. It's never easy. See, contentment doesn't come next day delivery. You know, you have to learn it. And very few of us learn contentment quickly. Isn't it true that most of us have to learn and relearn and relearn and and relearn some more what it means to be content and that just happens over and over and over again nod your heads I can't quite tell if you're agreeing with me with those masks on but that's how it is right we have to learn it listen to Paul verses 11 through 13 I am not saying this because I am in need for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And so what we begin to see in these verses and what we're gonna continue to see through this section is that Paul, he's being very careful to clarify his motives. And so he wants to say thank you, but not in a way that communicates the wrong thing. See, he doesn't want them to think that, that somehow he didn't have joy until their gifts showed up or, or somehow that he was dependent on their gifts instead of dependent on Christ. And so he tells them he's content and then he explains why. Now it's kind of interesting, this word content only is used one time right here in the New Testament and it was often used in Paul's day by Stoic philosophers. Uh, these are thinkers who saw contentment as self-sufficiency. They use this word to to mean, I don't need anything. I'm self-sufficient. But Paul's idea of contentment is Christ-sufficiency. 
Paul is saying, I don't need anything, not because I'm sufficient, I'm content because Christ is sufficient, because Christ is enough. That's Paul's idea of contentment. Jesus is enough. In fact, why don't you say those three words with me? Jesus is enough. That's what it means to be content. Let's unpack that. I, I think we can see three insights here that help us understand what Paul's talking about. First, if Jesus is enough, that means my circumstances cannot determine my contentment. Verse 11, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And that's just a comprehensive statement. Paul says, in whatever situation I'm in, I'll be content because Christ is in control, not my circumstances. How many of you need to be reminded today that Christ is in control, not your circumstances? See, when Jesus is enough for you, then nothing else ultimately matters and you can be content. Perhaps you can identify with this poem. It's, it's supposedly written, amazingly so, by a 14-year-old. And I didn't have time to check Snopes out on this one to see if it's really true because it almost blows my mind. But that's what everybody says. This poem is called Present Tense, written by a 14-year-old. Here's what it says. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. And that is the way so many of us live, right? But Paul says no. Paul says in whatever season you're in, whatever situation you're in, you can be content and you can do this because contentment is in Jesus and Jesus is enough. Second, if Jesus is enough, I can grow in contentment. And so that means you don't have to be discouraged about where you are right now. Paul acknowledges it takes time to learn that Christ is enough. It takes time to to bury that deep in your heart, for it to permeate every part of your soul and your spirit. You know, it takes time to learn, and so we can grow in this. And, And I think this word, in a sense, learn, is a word of grace because God is patient with us. He, he helps us learn, he helps us grow. And Paul says learn twice, verse 11 and verse 12. And, and I think a lot of us would love if contentment could just be sort of zapped in, right? Like if we just go somewhere and have an appointment and it gets an injection, oh, some of you don't like that, you don't want an injection, maybe a pill um, or maybe something easy to drink, I don't know, but you just want it to happen in a moment maybe even a moment of crisis all of a sudden and I'm just content for the rest of my life. But just think about this. Is that how we become like Christ in any area of our lives? See, growing to be more like Jesus is always work. It's a lifelong struggle. 
And so Paul's just pointing out for himself, this involves this struggle every day to believe that Jesus is enough. And Paul says, I learned it. Paul didn't have it all the time. He learned it. He didn't have some higher elite knowledge, some special secret initiation into the mysteries that the rest of us don't have. Never forget, Paul is the same kind of guy that we are. He has feet of clay. He had to learn contentment. And how did he learn contentment? He says, well, I learned it by being exposed to good stuff and bad stuff. And you're like, oh no, (laughs) I don't like that. But that's how you learn. He said, I learned an exposure to both poverty and prosperity. You could say that Paul went to two schools, the school of poverty and the school of prosperity. And we say, well, I only want the second one. I don't want the first one. But that's not how you learn contentment. You know, both schools ask different questions. Both schools have their own separate exams. And what Paul's really saying is I've taken the exams and I've passed the exams and I have learned that Christ is enough. I mean, just think about what we know about his life. You know, Paul... Uh, knew what prosperity looked like. He was acquainted with Lydia, who was part of the founding of the Philippian church. This is a very wealthy businesswoman who helped him plant the church. In Ephesus, in Corinth, people in the aristocracy, they became Christians. And so Paul probably had meals in really big houses as those wealthy people enjoyed God's gifts, rejoicing that God had used Paul to bring them the gospel. Paul knew abundance. I mean, this is a very educated guy. He had like the equivalent of two PhDs before he was 30. He came from a prominent, probably a wealthy family. But then Paul also knew poverty. You know, just read First and Second Corinthians and see how many times Paul writes about being hungry and thirsty, about being in rags, without clothing, about being homeless. See, Paul had experienced it all. And through both prosperity and poverty, he had learned contentment. Do you realize you can learn contentment in both of those schools? See, in prosperity, the issue you'll have to deal with is the issue of greed. Solomon says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with his income. The Bible tells us that money's not the problem. It's our hearts, right? It's the the love of money. Do you love it? Do you crave it? Are you putting your hope in it? And Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that wealthy people are always tempted to be arrogant. And you might be tempted if you have extra to put your hope in money and to be proud about what you have, that you somehow did it yourself and you're better than those other people who don't have it. And, and you might find yourself when you're wealthy not enjoying God's finest gifts in creation, which are free because... You're chasing cheaper substitutes that require purchase. When you're in prosperity, you can be stingy. You can make poor investments and waste what you have. You can, you can end up living an altogether empty life as a wealthy person. You know, it happens all the time. But poverty also has its temptations. Do you understand those of you who think, well, I don't have anything and, and you're, you, you criticize and judge wealthy people because you think they're greedy. Do you understand that likely you have a problem with greed too? Greed is a problem of the human heart. It's not a matter of your income or your status. 
and people who are poor can be greedy and sometimes they will steal to get rich because of their greed and maybe maybe your greed but you don't have much will just lead to envy and jealousy for the people who have more than you and all this shows us it's really not in the end about how much or how little it's the heart and that's why contentment is so important See, for Paul, it's always this question, is Jesus enough? And some of you need to write that question down and put it somewhere where you look at it every day. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough in poverty? In plenty, is Jesus better? Is he enough? Not too long ago, there's one of those religious programs, I won't mention it, but you know, the lady was sitting on the gold throne with her blue hair and her excessive makeup and and she said, you know, even if Christianity were not true, I would still wanna be a Christian because this is a wonderful way to live. And I think some of us have said something like that at some times, but think about this. By the way, that's not true. The Bible doesn't support that in any way, shape, or form. I don't have time to explain that, but I'm just telling you it's not true. But of course you can say that, sitting on a gold throne, but what about our brothers and our sisters in northern Nigeria whose heads are being cut off? What about those being persecuted in China or in the Sudan or in many other places? Is it such a wonderful way to live to say you're a Christian in those areas? And the answer is no, not at all. But that's not the point because Jesus is enough. So is Christ enough in your poverty? Is Christ enough for you? and your prosperity. Third, I'm gonna be a little theological here. My union and communion with Christ empowers my commitment. Those words union and communion are, are theological words that have a lot of meaning. And this comes here from verse 14. Verse 14, one of the most often quoted and most often misapplied verses in the Bible. And many of you are probably familiar with the translation, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, what I read to you a moment ago is the NIV, and the NIV's translation is, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And for some of you, that feels kind of like a letdown. But Paul says this is the secret. He says, I've learned the secret. What's the secret? I can do all things, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, here's what you need to know. And some of you, if you're feeling let down, it's because you don't understand the verse. Paul is not making a categorical, comprehensive statement when he says all things. He's not saying, I can break all chains and run a 4440 and knock over the soldiers through Christ who strengthens me. It's not what he's saying. And it's kind of unfortunate. There's a lot of athletes who use this verse like that. And, you know, they may mean well, but they're wrong. What's Paul saying? Well, think of it this way. I could say myself, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me so I can dunk a basketball. But it doesn't matter how many times I quote Philippians 4.13. I'm not dunking a basketball. And the problem is not my faith. The problem is not that I don't believe this verse because that's not what the verse means. And because I'm short and I'm 60. I can say, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can sing like Brian, but I can't. And if you've watched one episode of American Idol, that should teach you this reality. See, we have limitations. 
Paul knew he had limitations. So what does Paul mean? And I I think the NIV actually gets it right. Um, All this, if if your translation says all things, that is an accurate translation of the words that are in the Greek, but you would probably make it more clear if you put the word these between all and things. All these things. Then you'd have the idea. I can do all these things through him who strengthens me. You say, what are you talking about? Well, you can't read this verse out of its context. This verse is in a context. What's the context? The context is about contentment. See, Paul is saying, I can be content through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all these things in prosperity and poverty. Jesus is enough because Christ strengthens me. And the secret is this, when you're preoccupied with Jesus, when Jesus is enough, you're not preoccupied with your circumstances. It is then you will be content. And that's why Paul was content. That was the secret. When you're focused on Jesus, not circumstances, you find contentment. When you're focused on Jesus, not what you have or don't have, that's when you find contentment. And it is an easy truth to understand. Like everyone here gets it, you understand it. But it's a hard truth to actually live out, isn't it? Now, you're gonna witness a first today because I have never in a sermon quoted a NASCAR guy before. And I'm not really into NASCAR, so this may be the last time, but uh, Jeff Gordon once made a very astute observation. It may, I don't know, been the only time in his life, but um, he said this, in racing, either you focus or you end up hitting something really hard. That's deep, isn't it? (laughs) Either you focus or you hit something really hard, but you know what, that works in Philippians 4. Either you focus on Jesus or you're gonna hit greed. Either you focus on Jesus or you're gonna hit the wall of discontentment or you're gonna hit jealousy or you're gonna hit complaining. You will hit something really hard if you don't believe verse 13, that Jesus is enough, that Christ strengthens you for a life of contentment. Let me just ask you this question. This is a very personal question for you to answer yourself, but how do you lose your contentment. Is it about money for you? Is it about relationships for you? It could be any number of things. You know, for many of us today, the source is comparison. We live in a comparison culture. We endlessly compare ourselves to other people. I mean, just get on Instagram and you will quickly see thousands of people, all more beautiful, all more wealthy, all more fit, all more popular, all way more happy than you, loser. (laughs) Right? Right? Comparison robs you of joy and contentment. And Paul just keeps telling them, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Contentment and joy are in Jesus. Here's the third thing. Go ahead and and take this and write it down in your notes. Demonstrate contentment through sacrificial generosity. Now, in verses 14 to 19, Paul, he demonstrates for us this 
undeniable, unbreakable connection between contentment and generosity. Let me show you what I mean. I'm gonna read the verses and then we'll work through them. He says in verse 14, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So here's the question, am I a contented person? And here's the absolute litmus test that every one of us needs to take. What do you do with your money? What do you do with your resources? Are you generous? Are you generous with God? Are you generous with other people? And I know right now some of you aren't liking this. Some of you right now, whether physically or spiritually, are doing this with your arms. And those of you already have your arms clasped are gonna go like this so that I won't think that's what you're doing. And maybe it isn't. But the Bible teaches this over and over again. You know, one of the most familiar things Jesus said is also one of the most ignored things Jesus ever said. It's in Acts 20, verse 35. Jesus said, it is more blessed, what? To give than to receive. He says, blessedness, happiness, contentment, connected to generosity, right? And some of you are thinking, oh, here we go again, talking about money. No, we're just going through Philippians and we're talking about what Paul's talking about. That's all. Paul's talking about an offering. We're talking about an offering. So let's work our way through these verses. Several things you can write down kind of as things to hang and think about uh, as you understand this passage. Paul, first of all, saw that their generosity was evidence of their partnership in the gospel. Generosity means you're part of the team. Uh, He says it was a sharing, verse 14. That's the word koinonia, Uh, fellowship sometimes, but it's the idea of partnership in the gospel. Um, It's the sharing in Paul's troubles. And though the Philippians were 800 miles away, they shared in Paul's suffering through their generosity. They did this, by the way, even though they were suffering themselves, you can go back to chapter one, verse 29 for that. And, And this would just tell us if you're not giving to God's work, you don't have a part in it. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so what we do with our resources is a window into our souls. And so when God looks into that window, what does he see? See, the Philippians, they had nothing to fear when God looked into the window of their souls. Verse 14, Paul literally says, you done good. You done good. Verses 15 and 16 tell us the Philippians were astonishingly generous. He says, not one church shared with me, same word, it's about partnership, in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. And apparently there were some of these churches in the New Testament, maybe some of the churches Paul wrote letters to that were receiving the benefits of Paul's teaching, that were receiving the benefits of Paul's pastoral care, but they didn't give anything. And and Paul says to these Philippians, you're different. He says, by the time I went from Philippi, that's Acts 16, 
to Thessalonica. That's Acts 17. You can go read the account. He says, you are already supporting me even though you were a brand new church, even though you had just learned and received the gospel, even though you were poor yourselves. And you know, when I read that, I say to myself and I say on behalf of this church, that's the kind of church I want us to be. I hope that's the kind of Christ follower you want to be. See, most of us, maybe like the Philippians, we're not wealthy people, at least not in Bay Area terms, right? But we have experienced God's amazing grace, amen? We have been rescued from eternal death. We have been given eternal life, amen? And that's what Paul's teaching us. There is this inseparable connection between experiencing God's grace and generosity. So what does it mean to say we've received God's grace, but we're not generous? I think at the very least, it means we don't really understand grace. If you're receiving the benefits and enjoying the benefits but you're not responding with generosity, you you can't call yourself a partner. Maybe you're a customer, maybe you're a consumer, you're not a co-laborer. See, the Philippians shared in the work of the gospel through their generosity, and that's why Paul loves them so much. And I think what Paul's doing here is he's just, he's pressing on us both the privilege and the responsibility that we all have as Christ followers of giving and receiving in this supporting the mission of the church. That's what partners do. I think it has to be the reason why the Philippians got this so well is because they got the gospel. You see, when you get the gospel, you give. When you get grace, you give. Freely we've been given, freely we give. When you get that God is a giver and we're like him when we give, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus is a giver. Some of you know this from your your past or your culture, but all other religions in this world, they're takers. Only Jesus is a giver. And when you get grace, you give. And if you're not giving, you don't get the gospel. It's that simple because your theology, what you believe, always governs how you behave, always. And I think the reason why the Philippians were so sacrificially generous is because they knew the wealth they had in Christ. They knew that Jesus was enough. In fact, let me just add this in here. This is not in my notes. Someone needs to hear this. If you like to say Jesus is enough, but you don't give, you don't believe Jesus is enough. Just gonna put that out there. See, you'll never experience contentment, what we've been talking about apart from sacrificial generosity to support the work of God's kingdom. Now, again, I know, because I've been doing this for 35 years, I know right now some of you are sitting out there thinking, whatever, Pastor Mike, you're a pastor, you're worried about the budget. And I think Paul was kind of concerned, maybe the Philippians might might think the same thing, that, that he was commending them sort of as a setup to get more money, And so he gives a disclaimer in verse 17. Did you notice it? He said, I'm not looking for a gift. He said, what I'm looking for is what will be credited to your account. He says, I could get along without it because I'm content. I'm thankful 
but really I want you to benefit. And again, if you notice in here and you study this, you'll see Paul is using business terminology uh, all through this section. It's kind of an interesting thing, but he uses them with this intensely spiritual application. And and this phrase, that more be credited, it, it literally means continuing multiplication. It's like compounding spiritual interest that he says will come to the Philippians through their giving. And here's what I want you to see, generosity always benefits you. Remember Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I've said this to you before as your pastor when we've talked about giving, I don't want something from you as much as I want something for you. That's what generosity does, it benefits you. Paul goes on, he's kind of building on this and he wraps up the accounting metaphor when he says, I have received full payment and more, I'm full to overflowing. And in verse 18, he moves to the language of worship and he's telling us here, generosity is worship. In verse 18, he he really, he just places the highest possible value one could place on giving. He says, it is an act in which Almighty God himself receives worship. We get to worship with our money. God is actually pleased as we give, Paul says. He says God receives generosity, in this case as a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Let me just think about that. When we give, we get to please God. We get to make God happy. It's not just giving to the mission of the church. It's worshiping God. And it's not about the amount. This this is never discussed how much was given. The Philippians weren't wealthy. Paul's not talking about that. What Paul loves is fruitfulness on their behalf. What Paul loves is worship. What Paul loves is partnership. And God, he says, takes their generosity as this pleasing aroma. Like, I don't know, like we... We take barbecue. You know, we just take it in. Or it's morning, maybe it's fresh ground coffee, right? You know, for me, it's citrus blossoms. I love the smell of citrus blossoms. Just smells good. God welcomes our worship through giving. Let me just ask, do you worship money? Or do you worship with your money? See, money is a great tool, but it's a terrible master. And you do not want to be mastered by money. It's a tool. We, we need it. You know, you got to have your tools, but we don't worship it. And one sure way to break yourself from this idol, and it is an idol for so many of us, one sure way to break yourself from the idol of money is to give it away. And when we do that, we demonstrate our contentment. We demonstrate our confidence that Jesus is enough. I mean, you could just think about it this way. Every week or every month, however your pattern of giving is, every time you give, you are getting to say, Jesus is enough. God, you have made me your own. You have saved me. And now I gladly give back to you. And just God, the thought that this, my generosity would please you. Generosity is worship. 
The high point of this text, such a, another familiar verse for us is verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And this is the conclusion to which Paul has been driving. And again, this promise, like verse 13, is so often ripped out of his context. And here's what I mean. Verse 19 is only a promise for generous people. It's not for grudging people. You can't lift it out of its context and expect God to fulfill it. Paul says, if you're generous, then God promises he'll supply all your needs. And the immediate context in this letter is that God's gonna meet their generosity with his generosity. In, in the broader context of the entire book, Paul's just talking about how God's gonna supply their need for joy and steadfastness and humility and endurance and unity and peace, the ability to rejoice in all circumstances. You see, the stunning promise is there is not one thing God will not supply to generous believers. See, contentment revealed in generosity leads to God meeting all my needs. All my needs. God promises to do that. And it is a stunning promise from the creator of the universe. I mean, can you imagine these words ringing in the ears of the Philippians as the book closes? Can you imagine them saying, did, did he really say that? He did say that. What, what assurance, what contentment had to come their way. And I think that's why in verse 20, Paul says, that's time to get some praise on. He says, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever, amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, amen. Now you need to know this is all, everything we've been studying these past 10 weeks has all come about because of the Philippians' generosity. Right here, this praise, immediate context, Paul says, verse 18, you supplied my, night, my, my needs. Verse 19, he says, God will supply all your needs. Verse 20, he says, to God be the glory. And you know what, as your pastor, what I long for you is that you would know contentment, joy, the joy of Jesus Contentment in him, knowing that Jesus is enough and it's only going to happen in your life, in your life. It's only gonna happen when you learn contentment by believing and living in the reality again and again and again, reaffirming once more that Jesus is enough. Now I can't, I can't leave this without pointing out one more thing. It's so good. In verse 22, it says, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong in Caesar's household. So apparently, when Paul got to prison, I don't know, you know, Paul, he kind of talked about Jesus a lot. And apparently some people heard about Jesus from Paul and they became Christians and they were part of Caesar's household. So Paul writes, and now there are Christ followers in Caesar's household. They put Paul in prison, but they couldn't stop the gospel. And this, this little note tucked in here at the end of this letter is just this little reminder that the gospel is more powerful than anything else in the world. 
It's more powerful than any kingdom, than any empire. Jesus, not Caesar, is the Lord. There's one king, there's one eternal kingdom, and he is encouraging, Paul is, this little band of Christ followers in Philippi who are being persecuted by mighty Rome, and he's saying to them, never forget, never forget, nothing can stop the gospel, not even Caesar. Paul is saying, hey, I told you back in chapter one, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel, remember that? And can you imagine getting a letter today The brothers and sisters in Putin's household send you greetings. The brothers and sisters in Xi Jinping's household send you greetings. See, the gospel is indeed powerful enough to break through the hardest of hearts. You know how I know that's true? Because it broke through our hearts. Paul concludes by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit Amen. And I just want to sum it all up for us this morning by saying, may grace abound to you. Jesus is enough. We can be content. We can be generous. We can live joy-filled lives. Amen.